definitely the, our industry is putting a lot of effort into uh, making the 4G products as safe as, as possible. But again, you know, what I would suggest uh, for the industry is, you know, always be uh, keep be alert all the time for, you know, new pathogens and new challenges and, you know, uh, we need to constantly uh, try and come up with new uh, programs, you know, constantly update the existing programs to continue, you know, providing safer foods for the public. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adiseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. JBI helps poultry producers fight against harmful pathogens with the foaming power of D7 disinfectant. JBI prevents costly outbreaks and assures eco-friendly biosecurity on-farm and in transport. Safe and effective against AI, E. coli, salmonella, cocci, dermatitis, and other illness-causing pathogens, D7 is non-toxic, providing a safer environment for you and your employees. Low corrosive to equipment and breaks down biofilms. Learn more at jbidistributors.com. Hello and welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. Today I am here with Aniraj Sukumaran and we're going to talk about a range of topics. But first, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Elizabeth. I really appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, I'm excited to chat Um uh, we don't have a lot of research in the food safety and that sort of area. So I, I like learning about it because the stuff that we do on the production and nutrition side always affects the food safety. Um, so first, can you tell us how you got into chickens? Right. So uh, basically, I'm a vet veterinarian uh, by training. So I got my uh, DBM degree uh, back in 2013 from India. And at that time, you know, I was really looking for some higher study opportunities uh, especially in uh, Western countries. Uh, and at that time, uh, my topic of interest was microbiology. Basically, you know, throughout my DVM program, I was really enjoying the microbiology coursework and the labs and all those things. And I really felt like microbiology is the route I want to go in my career. And at that time, I was offered some assistantship in the area of food safety microbiology. And I felt like that's a really important uh, area, especially when you, uh, you know, think about public health and, you know, uh, those kind of topics. You know, in the last 10 years, a lot of things are happening, especially in that area of public health. And I was really interested. And that's how I kind of entered into the food safety area. And, you know, the assistantship I got was in poultry food safety microbiology. So that's how I kind of uh, entered into the uh, chicken research area. <laughs> 
<laughs> Did you have any uh, poultry background growing up or was it something you kind of fell into after your other interests? Right. So uh, my family was not from actually an agriculture background at all. You know, both my parents were like government employees and they were working for uh, civil, you know, c- uh, they were doing some civil jobs. Uh, and uh, we, d- we didn't have any agriculture background growing up. But then I got admission into the DBM program. And that's when all the you know connection with agriculture, animal husbandry, all these things happened. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I I find that poultry is one of those fields that a lot of people just kind of fall into from different ways. And I like that. You don't have to have a full lifetime experience to be really successful. Right. And, you know, again, uh, something that kind of helped me uh, know more about poultry and uh, something that attracted me towards poultry is that, you know, throughout uh, our DVM program back in India, uh, we had uh, several poultry science courses uh, that focused on poultry health, poultry diseases, and, you know, some microbiology aspect of poultry and poultry management. So that was something kind of gave me a real good base in, you know, uh, poultry uh, wearing, poultry practices, all those things. Yeah, and then the, re- the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, the rest is, you know, again. Yeah, so can you tell me a little bit about what your work focuses on in the the food microbiology and the food safety world? Right. So uh, most of my work uh, in terms of research, it it focuses on post-harvest food safety. So basically how we can control all these pathogens like uh, the famous pathogens like Salmonella, Campylobacter, which are, you know, industry focal points these days how we can control the prevalence of these pathogens or the entry of these pathogens into that processing plant. You know, that's where a lot of my research is focused on. So I work to develop uh, some novel antimicrobial interventions. Uh, These can be chemical uh, or physical or different biological methods to prevent these pathogens in poultry processing. And in addition, uh, one of the areas in that, uh, you know, uh, post-harvest food safety I focus is biofilms. So biofilms recently has become a big problem in the food processing side because, you know, the bacteria form biofilm on these processing surfaces and they can persist there for a long time, cross-contaminating the food products. And uh, two of my PhD graduate students are working on how we can remove biofilms, how we can prevent biofilms on food processing surfaces. And another area that I focus in addition to post-harvest food safety is pre-harvest. So basically how we can reduce the presence of these bacteria in live birds so that the influx of this, the amount of bacteria that go into the processing plants can be limited. You know? So pre-harvest food safety is one of the areas that I'm working with, especially you know, in the hatcheries. So hatchery is one of the points where a lot of bacteria enter into the poultry production chain. And if we can have some uh, developments in that area that can prevent uh, the bacterial load, uh, that would be something really cool that we can do for the industry. So that's one of the areas I'm. Yeah. So when you when you talk about the different methods, um, so some of it just revolves around, I'm assuming, the way the machine or the room is cleaned. Have you? Do you have any tips or tricks or kind of breakthroughs that you found as far as just the process of cleaning or what? reagents or chemicals are used? Right. So, so uh, as of now, industry has several standard chemical, you know, uh, sanitizers that they commonly use for cleaning the processing surfaces. But one of the challenges that we see these days is that these pathogens are developing resistance against a lot of these, you know, commonly used antimicrobials and sanitizers. So, so basically, 
you know, the, the challenge here is the industry constantly need to update the antimicrobials. You cannot just continuously use the same antimicrobial for like 10, 20 years because that's not going to be effective. So uh, one of the, uh, you know, things that I would suggest for the industry is constantly check the presence of pathogens in their facilities. And if they find some pathogens that are resistant to the sanitizers that they are using, uh, it's time for them to change it, you know. So, so that's one of the areas that I work with, you know, to come up with some novel interventions. Because industry will always need, every five years or three years, we'll need a new antimicrobial that can combat these new emerging pathogens, you know. Yeah. So is part of is part of that process just training people? I know one of the things about the different cleaners is contact time and debris. So is part of it just training people to use them correctly and then also maybe rotating the, the cleaner? Absolutely. You know, that's a very good point because uh, you know, I was just mentioning about changing nanomicrobials, but that's not enough. You have to train the people, especially the uh, sanitizing crew, uh, in the processing plants, how to use these antimicrobials effectively without de- developing much resistance, you know. So, so basically, rotating antimicrobials is a great way so that we can, you know, uh, cut short or reduce that resistance development, and also, uh, uh, you know, using the appropriate contact time is very, very important. You know, if you uh, expose these uh, antimicrobials for, you know shorter amount of time, which is not sufficient to kill them, that's when a lot of the resistance actually develops. So uh, the training part is extremely important. And I think, uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. So for maybe someone who doesn't really know what a biofilm looks like, um, I'm pretty familiar with them in water lines because they're they're kind of a film. Is it is it sort of the same thing, like a thin film that kind of builds up over time, or does it look different on this processing equipment? Actually, the the problem with biofilms is that most of the times, once we do a preliminary cleaning, the biofilms itself are not visible with naked eyes. Mm. So that's the challenge. So basically, biofilms, even though we can call it like a slimy layer of bacteria, it's not yeah. visible with the naked eyes. Uh. So that's one of the biggest challenges for the industry. Uh, you have to constantly monitor for the presence of biofilms in the processing equipments and surfaces. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, several companies and some uh, academic research are trying to develop some methods where we can spray something on the surface and kind of visualize the biofilm areas. Oh, yeah. So, so that's, that's... Uh, I think recently Ecolab, uh, they have developed a new technique which you can you know kind of spray on the surface and uh, there's a color change if there's a biofilm presence on that surface, you know. Oh, so that'd be really cool. Yeah, that's really interesting, you know. Uh, and I think people are these days working on developing some scanners, uh, which can kind of predict or determine the presence of biofilms on processing surfaces. Yeah. And the method we use in our lab is using electron microscopy, where we can uh, actually visualize uh, biofilm formation. So it's easy yeah. to do in the lab, but in a processing facility, we cannot just take the electron microscope, you know, scope over yeah. there. So that's a big challenge. So that's yeah. where I think we need some yeah. solutions for the industry where they yeah. can actually look for or monitor the presence of biofilm. Yeah. So are are there different challenges with the different types of production? I know that... Um, I'll just say conventional or antibiotic free versus organic. Are they are their cleaning methods different just based on what they're allowed to use? And then does the incidence of these biofilms differ between them? Like, 
what are the challenges with the different sorts of production, I guess? Yeah, I think this is a very, very important area because these days we have a, we can find a lot of products in the market like labeled as antibiotic-free or natural or organic. And uh, whenever you put that kind of uh, label, uh, you are not supposed to uh, use any synthetic antimicrobials that we commonly use in the industry. You know? So that makes it even more challenging because you you have very limited number of antimicrobial that are approved for that kind of, let's say, organic. You cannot use any synthetic chemicals in those uh, organic processing facilities. And you have to depend on natural antimicrobials and clean level antimicrobials. And and that's one of the areas that I am getting a lot of uh, call from the industry. A lot of people are approaching me to see, hey, can you develop uh, or can you work on something that we can use? Uh, we are not supposed to use parasitic acid. We are not supposed to use uh, commonly used chemicals. So how we can make the, our, you know, that kind of products like organic natural products safer. So that's one of the challenging part. And of course, that needs a lot of research in that area. Yeah, it, it sounds like the work you're doing is it can be applied almost right away. To the, if you find if you have a breakthrough, whatever that breakthrough would be, um, it seems like industry could use it really quickly. So I'm sure you're very popular. <laughs> I, mean, I won't call, call myself popular, but I feel like my work is important. Absolutely. And you know, yeah. I'm really proud of my work and uh, I feel like yeah. it's important. Have there, have you had any breakthroughs just in the, the makeup of a chemical or is there something that if someone is trying to go through a process and say, we're not getting, or we're getting biofilms or something isn't clean. Is there, is there something about the nature of their chemicals that they're using other than a resistance that you could kind of help lead them through a thought process on maybe some different ways to improve their cleaning process? Uh, for, for biofilms, you know, uh, what I have seen is uh, plants that use a multiple layer of sanitizing. So mm -hmm. basically uh, some of the plants, they only have one or two treatments just to clean up the surfaces. So if you if you can have like, you know, during the cleaning process itself, if you can have multiple treatments, for example, yeah. uh, one line of hot water treatment followed by one line of antimicrobial followed by another final antimicrobial, that kind of uh, take care of uh, a lot of the uh, biofilm issues. Mm. Uh, again, another approach that, uh, that a lot of industry is using these days is uh, there are some chemicals, I don't remember the exact uh, you know, chemical content, but there are some chemicals that can break down the biofilm structure. They don't kill the bacteria, but they break down the biofilm matrix. So if mm -hmm. you can give that kind of a treatment before you apply the antimicrobial, that increases the chance of you killing pretty much all that bacteria in the biofilm. Yeah. So that's one of the approach uh, industry is trying these days, using uh, a chemical which can break down the biofilm matrix first and then applying the antimicrobial, you know. Yeah. Oh, that. Yeah, that makes that makes sense for sure. So on the on the post on the post harvest side, it sounds like biofilms are kind of the big deal. But before that, so on the live production or in the hatchery, it's just making sure certain bacteria aren't present. So what are what are the kind of contrasting ways that that the hatchery handles cleanliness versus uh, maybe a slaughterhouse? Okay, so in the in the hatcheries, traditionally we used to uh, apply genomycin antibiotic uh, uh, in the hatcheries, but we are not allowed to use that anymore, and uh, that increases a lot of uh, bacterial problems. So right now the hatcheries has to rely more on 
uh, you know, sanitation technique techniques and egg sanitation session techniques to uh, you know improve the overall microbiological quality of the eggs. So I'm getting uh, you know approached by a lot of people uh, from the allied industry, especially these days. Uh, the companies that develop non-contact methodologies to kill bacteria, for example, pulsed uh, light or, you know, UV light or, uh, you know, antimicrobial systems that generate free radicals which can kill pathogens on eggs. So I'm getting a, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, calls from these companies to see if we can use those kind of techniques to enhance the microbiological quality of eggs, you know. So that's one of the ways uh, industry is looking these days to uh, minimize the bacterial load in the hatcheries. Uh, come up with something that cannot affect the quality of the embryos, but at the same time it can kill the microbiological risk. Yeah. So how, how well do those different pulse lights or any of the non-contact methods work? Are, are they something that if when used correctly, they're really effective or is it it could be effective in certain scenarios yeah so a, a lot of those technologies are still uh, especially in poultry still they are getting tested so uh, for example let me tell uh, there's a technique that uses uv light in combination with ozone and hydrogen peroxide and that can sanitize uh, uh, various vegetables and fruits and now we are trying to test those kind of uh, you know uh, technology in eggs and meat and see how we can, uh, if we can decrease bacterial load. And, you know, those are really effective in uh, vegetables and fruits and, uh, you know, surfaces like that. But, I'm, uh, you know, when it comes to poultry, it's a whole different, uh, you know, material and, you know, egg. And again, we have to care about the embryo quality, hatchability, things like that. But the technique itself is microbiologically effective but you have to make sure it's not affecting the embryo quality and stuff. During, uh, during COVID, I know that there was this just obsession where people would buy the little cabinets for their phones and they, the UV light cabinets. And I always wonder, are, like, are, do those actually work? Like, I mean, because the surface of your phone can be so different. It's, it can be metal or plastic and then your case is a whole nother thing. But is part of is part of the efficacy of UV light contact time or the type of surface? I mean, I see why it could be hard based on the surface. Right. So absolutely, you know, the surface can make a big difference. And again, applying UV light directly on the food product, uh, a lot of the times, public doesn't like it. So, so, so what 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 companies are doing these days is they don't directly apply UV light onto the product. What they do is they apply UV light. Uh, to a gas mixture, and the mixture generate free radicals when it is exposed to UV light, and that only that free radical comes in contact with the food product. And you know, uh, so those are some of the things some companies are trying these days uh, to uh, to sanitize products. I could imagine that maybe some of the other issue is the the throughput or the time because. Once you start eggs going into or coming out of these different temperature gradients, you you can't let them sit somewhere forever and have their surface temperature change, right? Because it could impact development. So that that definitely could be another well challenge, right? In getting some of these non interesting non contact methods. Exactly. Yeah. You know, finding that uh, right time in that production chain. You know, uh, we only have a couple of opportunities whenever, you know, the, in that whole production chain where we can apply the antimicrobials. So basically finding that right timing 
and optimizing our technology for that particular window of time is very, very important. Yeah, it's it certainly um, does not have uh, any limit to the challenges that. <laughs> right. You know, whenever we come up with something, we have a new problem associated with it. Yeah, yeah. So have, have you had any, like, interesting observations or kind of breakthroughs that you thought have been especially exciting over your, your work from, from the last few years? Yeah, so a couple of things that I have uh, found is, uh, you know, Campylobacter. So one of my uh, recent works is on Campylobacter, how it survives in mm. aerobic conditions, you know. So one of my... Uh, PhD students, the, the risks were really interesting. What we did was we tested to see if Campylobacter uh, can survive under the presence of air. So uh, mm -hmm. so historically, Campylobacter, if you try to grow it in a lab setting, it is very, very difficult to grow because it requires a particular temperature. Per, you know, it does not survive in the lab in the presence of air. Yeah. But now the question is, why is it uh, the most prevalent bacteria present in all the food products, especially poultry, yeah. you know, because all the environment is aerobic and how it's, it is surviving. So we just wanted to see if the Campylobacter isolates are you know, how it survives in that aerobic conditions. And we found that, you know, uh, around 40% of the isolates that we collected from the field, even though traditionally we think that Campylobacter cannot survive in air, uh, we found that more than 40% of the isolates were able to survive for more than 24 hours in the presence of air. Oh, wow. Uh, they have some inherent uh, mechanisms to cope with the you know, aero, uh, aerobic stress. We call it aerotolerance mechanism. Mm -hmm. And again, what we did was we tested uh, to see if these actual resistant strains can survive in chicken uh, on, the, you know, on the surface of chicken meat under refrigeration and freezing. One thing mm -hmm. we found that Yes, they survive, but the thing is refrigeration and freezing can decrease the counts of Campylobacter mm. uh, substantially uh, in presence of, um, you know, air. So, uh, yeah. so these are some of the findings that we recently had uh, that kind of give some insight towards what the industry can do to reduce some of these pathogenic risks. Yeah. So, so you can buy meat, chicken meat in different ways at the store. And I know a lot of people buy, well, the, the whole bird is really popular at places like Costco or, or Walmart or whatever. Um, and then you can buy the fresh meat, which hasn't been frozen. And then you've got everything that's frozen. So do you, would you say just from a, a risk standpoint, just because of what you've described, the fresh meat or the ready, you know, the already cooked meat has more of a, a chance of having an issue or is it people not preparing the chicken properly? Like what's, what is the problem, I guess? Actually, you know, if, if people uh, can completely follow the guidelines and cook the uh, meat properly, then we don't have any issues with salmonella yeah. or campylobacter. And the most, you know, most of the times what happens is that cooking process is not perfect all the time. Mm, so yeah. that's one of the big problems. And again, how people hand, handle meat uh, at home, you know, uh, it is not always the best way. Uh, you know, even after cooking, they might be handling, they might be using the same knife that they use for actually, you know, uh, cut the raw meat uh, yeah. for, you know, cutting their finished products. 
So if that's the case, again, you know, contamination can happen. But as long as you follow the proper cooking, I don't think any of these bacteria is a problem. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, most of the time that does not happen. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I can definitely, definitely see that. <laughs> Um, have you have you done any comparisons? Is the incidence of these foodborne um, pathogens is it higher in the unprepared meat um, versus something that might be mechanically processed? So like a chicken nugget or a chicken patty um, versus like just a chicken breast. Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, so we we did uh, this was one of our research questions for one of our recent uh, projects because we just wanted to see. Throughout the poultry processing, uh, we collected samples from all stages, from beginning and all the way to the end. So basically, uh, we collected samples right after defeathering uh, from those carcasses, before chilling, after chilling. Then we collected samples from drumsticks. And we also collected samples from MDM, which is the mechanically deboned meat that we use in hot dogs and stuff like that. So uh, what we found was that in the beginning, uh, there was almost 30 to 60% prevalence of Salmonella and Campylobacter, yeah, before chilling. Now, Im immediately after that chilling, the prevalence was completely decreased to zero, almost zero, pretty much. Because that chilling stage or the chill tank in the poultry industry is where they apply the most of the antimicrobial interventions. That was pretty much taking care of all the prevalence levels. But now what, what we observed, the interesting fact was that after chilling, when they cut up the meat into uh, drumsticks, again, the cross-contamination was increasing and the prevalence level went up to like 30%, 40%. So there was significant cross-contamination during that cutting or deboning process, uh, you know, where the bacteria numbers were again rising. And now, another thing that we found, uh, we also checked the presence in the MDM or mechanically deboned meat the presence was almost like 70% back to that initial level because it goes through that rigorous grinding process. And I think that process is definitely increasing the cross-contamination because one carcass frame is enough to contaminate the whole batch, you know. So, so that's something that was really interesting, you know. Uh, even though that in intervention decreases bacteria levels, going back up again uh, during some of these processes. Huh, I would not have guessed that. That's so interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting. And it has already been published yeah. uh, in 2022. Yeah. So what is the difference? So some companies are using an air chilling method and some use the water bath. Is there a difference in prevalence between those two methods? Uh, I think there are some differences, but there's nothing conclusive against, you know, uh, about uh, which method is the best in terms of microbiology. But, you know, theoretically speaking, air chilling can decrease cross-contamination because there is no direct contact between uh, carcasses. Uh, but uh, in water chilling, all the carcasses are going through the same chilling tank, you know. But again, uh, you know, how we can apply antimicrobials to the carcasses, the chilling tank might be more effective than spraying antimicrobials on those uh, hanging carcasses in the air chiller. So, so there are some differences, but there is no conclusive evidence that one method is better or the, than the other. And again, in the U.S., we don't use much air chilling. It's mostly uh, water chilling. Most of the air chilling happens in European countries. You know? mm, yeah. 
Yeah, those parts of the the processing are just so interesting to me, especially the mechanization and how precise those machines are to do a lot of the the automation so someone doesn't have to sit and cut and whatnot. But yeah, it's such a cool process. It is, yeah. <laughs> a lot of advancements are happening, especially in the processing automation these days. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really exciting. Um especially for the throughput for the number of birds per minute. I know it can kind of vary, but whenever you know, a processor says what their throughput is. It just blows my mind. <laughs> right, it is. Yeah, as of now, I think it's 140 birds per minute. You cannot yeah. go uh, above that, I yeah. think. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, if USDA yeah. allows, industry can go even higher. Um, I, I teach a course in the fall, and the students do get to process birds. And I I, I kind of have to laugh because they we, we tell them about, you know, this is a slower version, and there is automation, but it's a lot different than than the other process where it's all on a, a line and going. And because we're having students do the process and interact, I think we, gosh, I feel like we might get through 60 birds in an hour and a half. So <laughs> it's, it's a fun process and learning, but it's not the speed that. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but the cool thing is like to train people, you know, to train the students, it's better to have a small or lower line speed, you know, so that we can actually show them what's going on. But again, you know, industry, it's 140 birds per minute. So it's <laughs> yeah. like real quick, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, you don't just throw them into that. That would be a little... <laughs> <laughs> and again, you know, I, I think it's the same for all academic institutions. At Mississippi State, we have a small poultry processing plant here. And the line speed is, I think, maximum 17 birds per minute. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah but we, we don't even do that. We might be doing like five birds per minute or something like yeah. that. So we can yeah. show them actually what, what what's going on. Oh yeah, no that that makes that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, so so do you have any um, maybe any insight since you do a lot of you you've talked about a lot of your student research, which is really amazing. Um, how do we prepare students for jobs in the industry, especially in the processing or maybe in the personnel training to do the pre and post harvest, like the cleaning and all of that? Like, what are some of your insights in that that area? Okay, so. Uh... Uh, we always get complaints from the poultry processing industry here that you guys are not uh, doing enough to prepare uh, them for the actual industry processing because most of the times the limitation is the commercial poultry processing is really fast-paced, you know. they yep, Just like that, you know, birds are going like every minute, 140 birds, and we cannot do that here, and that's one of the big limitations. But what I try to do is, uh, you know, I try to teach them everything like theoretically in the lectures and then I take them to our processing van and try to give them as much hands-on experience as possible. Uh, and, you know, one thing I always tell them is try to get as many internships as possible uh, in the actual processing plant so they can go through, uh, you know, the real-world industry scenario. They, they should see it. it's completely different from the academic you know, processing that we do here. But again, this helps them to kind of catch up when they go to actual internships and stuff like that. And again, you know, a lot of technological advancements are happening in the processing industry, like automation, uh, application of AI and uh, robotics. All those things are happening in the industry these days. And I would say what we need to focus as academicians for our next generation poultry processing uh, is to uh, update our knowledge on all these things and kind of have some short courses or, you know, update the existing courses with these newer technologies. 
rather than just continue continuously teaching, you know, the older techniques, we need to update uh, the new methodologies, new bacterial testing methodologies, uh, all those things to the incoming students so they can be competitive enough for the future. Yeah, I, I feel like the, the industry has to change so rapidly that it's hard for academic institutions to, you know, build a facility and then keep up just because the, the, the life or the lifetime use of that facility is so much different versus a commercial facility. Absolutely. It's, it's very difficult. And again, it's expensive, you know, to change, yeah. Yeah, to change those equipments and the logistics of the building. It's not easy. And again, mm-hmm. uh, uh, so we have to, we are always going to be limited in resources, but the best we can do is to use whatever is available uh, and, you know, try to teach them the best we can. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, what else does industry look for in these trained students? Like if, if you're, if you're training students or graduate students or undergrads, how can you best prepare them to be ready for the, the difference that would be the actual industry? Right, so that's that's a very good question. And recently, I gave a, a PhD prelims examination for two PhD students that I have, I, and it was like uh, two weeks ago. And one of the questions I asked them was about uh, regulatory compliance in uh, poultry industry. So that's one of the areas, like how to deal with USDA regulations, FDA regulations. Those are things that a lot of the coursework does not cover in the universities. And again, those laws are constantly updated. New uh, salmonella regulations are coming out like every six months these days. You know, know, changes are happening like every time, like continuously. So uh, I believe one of the areas that we need to focus is trying to develop some new coursework in the area of regulatory compliance. Uh, especially for grad students, they completely focus on research and they're always thinking about this bacteria and all those things, but they never really think about what is the FSQA, Food Safety Quality Assurance uh, laws, regulations, rules, and, and a lot of these students are not really aware of what's happening in that side. So I would say that's one of the areas we really need to kind of, uh, you know, enhance our... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, increase the exposure to some of the regulatory. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Um, do you do you have a, like a theory for mentoring your graduate students? Like, kind of, like, what's your big what's your big picture for how to train a graduate student successfully? Right. So, so one thing that I really, really want my graduate students to have is the ability to work independently. So, uh, especially for PhD students. So, what I do is. Uh, in my lab, uh, I call it like a my I, I myself call it like a self training program. So so what I do is I I do not give my PhD students their research objectives or anything. I just tell them what I want in a big picture, and I ask them to come up with their own research objectives and projects. And uh, usually, I give them the first three to four months. To kind of work on some, do some lit review, do you know, learn about the industry, and identify some problems in that area, and then come up with some real nice objectives. You know, if they don't do that, because the next step after PhD is either an academic position or a creative industry scientist position, and if they cannot come up with you know solutions for real world problems, you know, then that's a problem. So, so, so that's one of the areas that I really 
ask my students, you know, I do not provide any help in coming up with ideas. That's your part. And that's what a PhD student really need. And for a master's student, I, I give a little bit more guidances. And again, I make my PhD students actually train the master's students that we have, and even the undergrads you know, in the lab. Uh, that way, they can be coming into those leadership type of roles in the future. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, that's really important. We do uh, something similar in the lab with mentoring of the newer students. Even if someone comes in and they're, you know, technically ahead if in their schooling, there's still a ton of mentoring that has to go on when anyone new joins the lab as far as techniques and whatnot. So it's, it's useful to be able to train uh, new people coming in because you'll never get away from that. Absolutely, absolutely. you know, and, and that's pretty much the only chance these graduate students really get to actually do hands-on work because once they move on to an academic positions, our focus is more about the program and how to mm -hmm. generate money for, you know, supporting the program. And we get very limited time to actually do hands-on work in yeah. the labs and stuff. So I think this is their time to actually do some, yeah. some of those lab, you know, things. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. <laughs> it sounds like you've got quite a, a nice program. Uh, you're turning out some good students, so I'm excited to see them in the industry in the future. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm so proud of it because I got some really fantastic graduate students and they are all very capable and they are all very creative. And that produces my job uh, responsibility a lot because a good yeah. graduate student, you know, is... Mm -hmm. Having a good graduate students is really important. And, yeah. and I got some fantastic ones. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so before I ask you the three questions that we ask everybody, is there anything else that we, any or any kind of part of the topic that we talked about today that you feel like you need to just kind of hit a conclusion home or any, any final thoughts on what we've talked about? I would say, uh, you know, for the industry, uh, food safety, is an important part and uh, definitely the, our industry is putting a lot of effort into uh, making the poultry products as safe as, as possible but again you know what i would suggest uh, for the industry is you know always be uh, keep be alert all the time for you know new pathogens and new challenges and you know uh, we need to constantly uh, try and come up with new uh, programs, you know, constantly update the existing programs to continue, you know, providing safer foods for the public. Yeah, it's the old moving target, right? It keeps you job security. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know, exactly. You know, once once a food safety problem happens, you know, that's again a lot of money you have to spend on all those recalls. And I would say prevention is better than cure. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. <laughs> It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operation safe. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. 
One of AB Vista's core strategies is to give customers the flexibility to do more with less, which is a common theme among many companies and producers in today's industry. As a science-driven company, AB Vista has proven results to help our customers achieve optimal performance using customized programs with our core phytase and xylanase. So to, to wrap up our talk today, um, the first question that we ask everybody who comes on here is, what is your favorite poultry-related book or resource? Okay, so uh, I... So I'm a veterinarian plus microbiologist, so, and I teach the poultry diseases course here. So uh, one of the textbooks that I always refer to is you know, Swain's uh, Poultry Diseases textbook, and that's one of the gold standards for the whole poultry diseases area, where they have, like, you know, that book is fantastic. It has described, I think that's a reference book they use for the Master of Avian Medicine program uh, and ACPV and all those uh, certifications. So. That's one of the resources I always uh, give my students, you know. Uh, uh, in my syllabus, I have listed that textbook as the resource for them to look for any any, any poultry diseases. Yeah, that's a good one. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, what is your favorite non-poultry-related book or resource? Yeah, even though I would say it's non-poultry, but uh, it's still related to the subject. So one, one of the uh, resources I use, uh, it's not a book, it's called Merck Veterinary Manual. It, it, it is, there is a book for it, but I use the online version of the Merck Veterinary Manual all the time because it has summarized a lot of the things uh, in you know, a couple of pages. So if you, if you really want to look back into some of the important information regarding something, uh, I always go to that online Merck Veterinary Manual and uh, you know, find out what I want. I I refer to that quite often, especially when I'm teaching, because it, it sort of seems like the Wikipedia. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then you can go look up anything else from there that, and there's hot links and yeah, you, so you can find a lot of information in a short amount of time. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, that's a, that's a very, uh, you know, a small summary of the whole poultry disease area. And yeah. And, and yeah. There's, I think there are other websites like poultry DBM. Oh, uh, yeah. Where we can find a lot of information on different poultry diseases and conditions mm -hmm. and microbiology and all those things. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome having those quick links. I definitely like that. <laughs> um, so for our, our last question today, um, for someone who wants to get into the poultry industry, what's your best advice to be successful in the poultry industry? Yeah. So I would say, first of all, poultry industry is uh, it's a big industry, of course. And it has different niches. We have nutrition on one side. You have food safety on the other side. You have animal welfare. You have uh, uh, basic molecular biology happening on another side. Management on that, you know, multiple different segments. And I, I would say, you know, before you actually go into your career, think about which is the actual thing that you really like and enjoy. And, you know, make sure you like that area and then, if you are really convinced, just go into that area. You know, understand more about the industry, what's happening. You know, especially for example, if you are really into processing, so try to understand poultry processing plants and the job opportunities available in that area and the line of work and business happening in that area. You know, things like that before you actually jump into it. That way, that that way you have more chance of success 
you know, than just going without without preparing much. Oh yeah, yeah. I I, I think that is great advice. Yeah, check check out what you like and. I always tell my students that take my classes, sometimes I'm here to show you what you don't like. So <laughs> it's it's equally as good to know what you don't like as what you do like. So <laughs> Because, you know, I teach the poetry undergraduate seminar course here, and half of the students who enroll for those courses still does not have an idea about what they want to do uh, in the next step in their career. And they are still confused what, what field of poetry that they want to go. So I always kind of try to, you know, give them some tips about how to choose your area of interest and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's great because there it's 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 equally good to know what you're good at and what you're not. So Right, absolutely. <laughs> and it's very important. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We've I think we've had a really good discussion and as always I, I've I've learned a lot, so um, you still give me confidence, though, that the, the industry is doing all they can and they're really at the forefront, especially for the different methods to control microbial contamination. So really awesome. Yeah. yeah. And thank you for the opportunity, Elizabeth. And absolutely, yeah. I love the questions you asked. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. Have, have an awesome rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye.